Good evening and good morning. So this is Abhivadan from Internationalism and we begin with the third third episode of M Does Think. Uh, we thank you for your loveliest responses for the first two episodes and we hope that we come up with amazing podcast in future. So we have Dr. Indu Vishwanathan and Vishal Ganeshan. Uh, I would be very happy to introduce them as the part of the great Twitterati. <laughs> and i would also say that uh, the discussion which we are having here would be uh, much in regards to a very important issue which i am not the first to address i think many people have done in the past but uh, we would do with a twist to understand conceptually what the issues are and how these events with regards to have been unfolding so today we are going to discuss hindu phobia in certain anglophone universities now um we can definitely define hindu phobia but i don't consider myself the person to define it so i would uh, ask um, my friends to basically uh, define hindu phobia so i would ask dr indu to go ahead and then maybe vishal can put up his own thoughts so yeah sure thank you for having me on i i appreciate being here and appreciate being a part of the conversation i don't know if i appreciate being called a part of the twitterati but here i am <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wrote it down because I wanted it to be very uh, specific. Uh, and um, so what I've written is uh, Hindu phobia, the way I see it now, my working definition is that it's a cultivated antagonistic attitude that Hinduism is inherently or fundamentally an urgent and dangerous problem that needs to be solved by outside actors and ideas. And so it's premised on this sort of perpetual circular logic that says the only valid assessment of Hinduism is that it is oppressive, regressive, and rigid. And anyone who disagrees with this assessment is invested in upholding that oppressiveness, regressiveness, and rigidity, and is therefore themselves oppressive, regressive, and rigid. Um, and I would, I would also just like to offer that I think a lot of time and energy and, and momentum community momentum is expended on whether is it phobia, is it mizia, is it dvesha, et cetera. And I would argue that this is to our detriment for a few reasons. One, I think phobia is a really um, accessible entry point for lots of people to enter the conversation. It's something they, they understand to be a term that's used to describe discrimination and bias against other communities and not just religious communities, but any kind of marginalized community, whether it's transphobia, phobia, uh, homophobia, etc., um, and so you can kind of easily onboard people. Like if if you were to hold a talk about like Hindu, like hatred towards Hindus, you wouldn't likely get a lot of people to enter that conversation. Two, um, if you look at the descriptions of phobias, uh, not the definitions, but the full descriptions um, of phobias of other communities, you'll find that it incorporates concepts like hatred and um, active. Um, systemic and institutional attempts to disrupt or undermine these communities. Um, and so it's not just simply sort of a, a, a fear, an illogical fear. And three, um, there is a cultivated fear of Hinduism. And we've seen, and the term has been around for hundreds of years. And I think I think Hindu history and Michelle do a great job of, of showing how that fear is cultivated. And it's not just in the past, it's in the present. You know, you have, you know, I talk to, to kids, I have high school children myself, I talk to Hindu kids across the country and they tell me that um, people are afraid of them. Their peers are afraid of them being terrorists because they're Hindu. So to say that there is not a fear of, of actual Hindu people 
and not just Hinduism, I think is is untethered to to the reality to the reality that Hindus are experiencing around the world. Great. So Vishal, how would you like to add up to this? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have a, a, a conceptual definition of it. Um, I leave that to the experts like Indu. I, I think my kind of approach is more to, you know, rather than trying to name something, I'm kind of more interested in understanding the historical dynamics and understanding, like describing the phenomena, right? And uh, I think, you know, what I found in um, uh, my work with Hindu history, so, you know, the kind of animating um, motivation for Hindu history is understanding that uh, we inherit a lot of the kind of cultural representations are, that, you know, are kind of just circulating in the culture that are embedded in the cultural imagination. And I think that uh, we, you know, we have a, there's always like a, a bias towards the present, right? And I think that a lot of people, when they kind of uh, go through life and they go through their education, they pick up certain knowledge about, you know, Hinduism or, and they, and they kind of just, uh, they, they're predisposed to think that these are all like, you know, well-considered, fact-based conclusions that are, uh, you know, uh, backed by scholarship and, you know, but, you know, I, I think one of the valuable lessons I've learned from Hindu history is that, well, you know, the representations of Hinduism in American culture uh, long predated the kind of arrival of Indians and Hindus in America in any significant numbers. And um, these representations of Hinduism were so tied up in domestic sociological and theological disputes, right? Whether you know, it was um, fights between, you know, denominational fights between Unitarians and Trinitarians, whether it was, you know, Protestants uh, expressing fear about Catholic influence in America. You know, the, the, the representations of the Hindu were kind of tied into these these disputes. And um, a lot of the tropes that you see develop in, you know, the early 19th century that are communicated through these newspapers, uh, you know, there is a kind of continuity that you can observe. Um, if you look at the sort of received opinion about Hinduism in, um, you know, the popular discourse today. So I think, you know, for me, uh, when we're talk when we're talking about this phenomena, whatever we want to call it, really to me, what, what it describes is the kind of, you know, we've, there is, there's a, uh, we've received a lot of these historical representations that are kind of deeply embedded in the American cultural imagination. And, you know, these representations have a very particular kind of intellectual history, you know, like, the, the the I sometimes think about Hindu history and like what it is. It's almost like a intellectual archaeology, you know. Like archaeologists will see like some ruins above the surface, and they try to find out more about. Okay, well, what's the story behind these ruins, right? And they keep digging, and they find all this other evidence. They find like potsherds or whatever. That's that's kind of how I see uh, you know the, the, what we're dealing with today. Is like we see these ideas kind of circulating and you know uh, taking hold in the culture, and I think a lot of people who are part of the culture kind of. Uh, grasp intuitively that there's an asymmetry between their kind of individual perception and their individual experience as a part of the tradition versus like the received opinion. So the question is, okay, well, what is the origin of that asymmetry? And I think kind of digging into the newspaper clips and looking at this evidence, um, not just like, you know, um, in newspapers, but also like in the kind of missionary journals that were propagating a lot of this stuff and, um, you know, popular fiction during the period too, like you start to understand like, okay, now I see where a lot of this is kind of originated. I think, uh, you know, the important thing is to get people, not just Hindu Americans, but, you know, all Americans kind of understanding the history of these attitudes that they do have and, um, you know, trying to kind of deconstruct uh, the original motivations behind these views and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, uh, go forward with a more open mind to understand the truth of the situation, you know, given that context. 
that's a really interesting point. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, if I could just add to that, I think one of the things I really appreciate about about Vishal's work and and just having that the, that primary source information is that it's really good evidence of, um, you know, if you look at you mentioned, you know, missionary pamphlets and work. You know, if you look at the origins of anthropology, it is very much the the colonial reporter and the missionary. Those are the two people that were reporting back to to England or to other colonial. Um, not just the colonial governments, but to the average person. So the average person uh, was was reading these reports to understand the, the lands that were being helped by the colonizer to justify that sort of to, to 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 create this sort of consent that it was the right thing to do. And the reportage obviously was not unbiased. Uh, and it was very much premised on on stereotypes and of course stereotypes, uh, the danger of stereotypes is not that they're always completely untrue. It's that they're a tiny decontextualized sliver of truth magnified to appear as if it's the entire truth. And you see that constantly in the tropes uh, that sort of undergird Hindu phobia and, and colonial scholarship around Hindu phobia, sati and caste and all of these things you take these tiny decontextualized things and you're like, this is the entirety of the thing. And you see that constantly as the themes in, in Hindu history's findings, um, that this is what's reported. And, and th these continue to be the stereotypes that we find today. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, let's take the discussion forward since we have tried off to conceptualize what we're discussing now. Um, now, definitely there are some vicissitudes that we see in the West as a whole. I mean, America is the at the forefront of Hindu-phobia. We see a lot of cases there. I mean, we have also seen the UK and we will be discussing some of these issues, of course, about uh, some of the scholarships which have developed, which have a colonial intent or a colonial construct to say. So um, when uh, a typical Indian should see how these things are emerging and def definitely there is some uh, degree of understanding of how this Hindophobia has emerged in the West for a long time. Uh, I'd like to understand how this formation does affect the Indian scholarship in general, because uh, we typically see that uh, the Indian scholarship also on Hinduism or the Indic culture, so forth, the Sanatan culture itself, has a very much inspiration from the West. I mean, I can give a lot of examples from the field of law to social sciences to a lot where I can tell uh, that people actually copy. Like I can give one example. So there is uh, there was a panel discussion which happened maybe a month or so before. And the topic was maybe institutional casteism. Now, if you see the phrase itself, you can actually find this phrase very common to a term known as institutional racism, which is related to the BLM movement in America. So we see that a lot of Americanization of the academia or the Americanization of the entertainment sector, whatever we say, happens. Uh, so in that case, uh, how should we see that in India in general? Of course, this is a concern from the West and we will be coming on that. But if we see it for an Indian landscape in general, how should we see it? So maybe we shall get started, Dr. Indu, if we may start, as we have the wishes to. Yeah, Indu, do you want to go ahead or? Uh, let me have a moment to process. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can just say that, like, I, I think it's true that, uh, you know, there is a lot of, you know, academia, um, it's, you know, incentive driven, like any other uh, kind of sector. And I think that, you know, it's 
you know, American universities, you know, whether Western universities, I guess more broadly, like, you know, th that they dominate kind of the process of knowledge production is not, shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? I mean, this has been true for centuries. And um, it's certainly true in America now, right? I mean, these universities are kind of like, they have the most resources, they have massive endowments, they have, um, you know, they, they, they have the prestigious fellowships. So, you know, I think there's a, it's a very natural sort of, if you're a, an aspiring academic, right, whether you're uh, in India or America, I think there's a kind of a compelling incentive to, um, to frame your scholarship in a way that's legible to the powers that control knowledge production, right? Because that means that your work is going to be seen by them and it's going to be legible in a way that gives you access to, you know, opportunities that you might not have otherwise. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there is a danger there, right? Because it's, it's one thing to kind of like you, I, I think it's important to, you know, work to uh, publish work that can have an impact, right? You want like your work to be in dialogue with whatever the kind of prevailing academic consensus is. That's how you uh, will change it in a positive manner. But I think that the danger is that you end up seeing your world in the same way. Um, and I think that happens, you know, certainly, you know, you see it in journalism, right? I mean, I, that's kind of a world that I'm more familiar with. And I think that, you know, you, it, it, the same dynamic plays out where I think a lot of uh, Indian journalists uh, especially writing in English, will tend to take like American political concepts and and, and kind of uh, you know jerry rig them to apply them to Indian politics and society, and I and and you know this and it makes sense, right? If you're like if you're trying to uh, kind of uh, gain access to uh, American media outlets, like it makes sense to write about uh, Indian politics in that way, but the explanatory value is pretty minimal. I mean, if you actually like uh, are trying to understand the dynamics of the Indian political sphere and, you know, understand the society on its own terms, you can only get so far kind of marrying yourself to an American uh, uh, political lens. So I, I do think that that's a, a similar dynamic plays out in academia. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear about the, you know, academic conferences in India kind of adopt that terminology. It's not particularly surprising to me, but yeah, uh, it's not, it's not just in academia where you see that dynamic play out. Um. Yes, a hundred percent. I agree with with what you've said. I also would would push against this idea that academia is a monolith. I think when we're talking specifically about disciplines like South Asian studies and Indology, those disciplines are foundationally invested in perpetuating these, right? And so they have a lot to lose by any kind with any kind of disruption. So you see people clinging to them. But I think in in other disciplines, I think there is more of a possibility of of people open to conversations and open to disruptions of, and, and asking these questions. I see it in my discipline in education. I was, um, this weekend, as I've shared with you, is a huge uh, educational conference. And I was on a, on a, at a paper session yesterday presenting a paper and um, we had a conversation about the social justice theorizing in the United States and how it's very much rooted in American history to, to the, you know, sort of uh, consistent exclusion of other histories and other realities and um, how that essentially, that essentializes people and reduces people, especially people coming uh, as immigrants from post-colonial countries in the global South. And, um, and like very openly had conversations about selective recognition of persecution and how that shapes the public consciousness and how that shapes, you know, like even when people are willing to listen to, to stories of and histories from other countries, it still doesn't enter the space of how do we theorize about these things. 
and um, the panel was, you know, the people on the on the um, at the roundtable were people from all over the country, um, all different backgrounds. It wasn't like it was just comprised of people uh, who were second generation or immigrants from other countries, and people seemed to get it. Uh, and so I think there is room to have these conversations, just knowing how to enter the space. Um, I think, again, I think because um, because those two disciplines are, or two areas, uh, the area studies of South Asian studies and, and Indology are so invested in not moving uh, because the whole thing will come tumbling down. I think there's a lot of defensiveness there, but you don't get that defensiveness from scholars and disciplines where they don't have skin in that game. You just don't, like I've, I see it over and over again. And there is a way to enter that conversation, I think calling people into it rather than calling people out. I mean, they're just gonna work with whatever information they have. Um, the second thing I'll say is at my institution, I do see a difference between the international students that come from India and are trying to, to understand how to navigate the academic discursive space. And so they, they are almost more uh, more readily take up the American frameworks to talk about their Indian experiences than an Indian American might be necessary. I mean, not all Indian Americans, but some Indian Americans. And so I do see this difference, this this um, sort of desire to fit into the popular discourse when these international students come to, at least to my department, um, versus I, I think there's a lot more diversity of thought amongst Indian Americans in the department. Um, so that's just sort of a, an observation about the, I think the inclination to, I, I think uh, by the time an Indian American has reached, you know, graduate school, we've, we've, um, what's the word? We've negotiated these sort of concepts of acculturation and assimilation. But when you get an Indian from India, who's been aspiring to come to the United States for however long to study here, sort of a dream come true, they're, they're negotiating that assimilation maybe for the first time. Uh, and so I see, you know, when um, when the NEP came out last summer, I saw really interesting conversations in amongst Indian educational scholars around this that um, interestingly were taking up concepts from US educational discourse, like in very odd and very strange ways. Like I think if they were to bring those conversations to, to US educational discourse, people would, would question why they were applying those theories in that way, because it just doesn't make sense. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think there is room to disrupt it. Um, and I think it's just calling more people into the room to discuss it rather than having it be polarized and making accusations and, and calling people names and, and labeling people. And just a, a point of clarification, um, BLM is a movement. It doesn't represent uh, the entire civil rights movement that's been happening in the United States for generations. So I just wanna make sure that we we move away from, from reducing uh, an entire movement and an enti entire disciplines of study to perceptions of movement from outside the movement. Definitely, definitely. Uh, the reference just I made was because of the fact that people copy it. So. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can even give one funny example, although I don't wish to, that there is an Indian cricketer who posted a hashtag on Twitter maybe months ago, maybe in 2020, and he said Dalit Lives Matter. Now, obviously, I just made it in that point in an analogical manner that they copy mm -hmm. it. But of course, mm -hmm. I believe that the BLM discourse is a completely different thing. And 
I think in this discussion, we should not uh, limit ourselves to discuss BLM in general. So, um, Michelle, would you like to have a follow up? Yeah. Or anything? Um, no, I mean, I think that's that's all that all makes sense to me. You know, I think that this is probably a a, a deeper discussion, and you know, I, I don't know, maybe this is um uh maybe this is the uh you know uh, a segue into what's hap what happened at Rutgers, but you know, I think this is a conversation that. I've certainly been a part of some of these discussions on like Clubhouse and, you know, I know that people are talking about this kind of stuff on, on Twitter, but, you know, there are these questions about like, okay, like, you know, we're seeing what's happening with, uh, you know, Audrey Trishke and her scholarship. And, you know, there's this question of, you know, what, what is the way forward? And I think that it's an important discussion to have, you know, and I, and I, it's good, like, it's, it's good to see, you know, um, students, uh, you know, speaking up and uh, trying to hold her accountable for her behavior. But I think there's also kind of a, a longer term, discussion and project, right, that we need to talk about, which is like, you know, how, how do you, how do you correct, like, what is the actual uh, ultimate objective there, you know, and I think this is, um, and I think uh, what Indu said is, is very um, astute on like, you working within this academic framework, right, like, it's not, I don't think it's helpful to kind of uh, paint in broad brushes and say, like, oh, like, academia is Hindu phobic, and therefore, like, we should just ignore it, or, you know, um, uh, just not, not worry about what's going on inside. Like, I, I think that's uh, oversimplification, right? And like, obviously different, every field has its own dynamics. And, you know, there are uh, academics who have like, you know, uh, a certain um, incentive to uh, hold on to like prevailing narratives and kind of uh, keep out any sort of opposing views. But that's not true in every field. But, you know, I think that's also, you know, we were talking about, uh, I was talking, there was a, in one of these clubhouse discussions, there was a scholar uh, that I was, um, talking to and he's a Ismaili, right? He's Ismaili Muslim. And he was telling me like, you know, this is a, a something that Ismailis had to deal with in academia, right? Because they were kind of, in a lot of ways, when they, when, when he started publishing um, in like religious studies department journals and, you know, and um, they're, you know, they're often grouped together with like Islamic studies generally, but there was a lot of kind of resistance to the, you know, his point of view when he first started publishing. And um, the Aga Khan set up an institute, right? The Aga Khan Institute, and what this institute ended up started doing is they started like funding fellowships and like, you know, funding, uh, uh, you know, journals and providing scholars uh, kind of a, uh, a, a internal point of view. Right. Like the, I think this is the, the thing to focus on is like, you know, every tradition, every religious community, you know, there's a insider point of view and then there's an outsider point of view. And I think one of the problems that we are facing is that uh, a lot of the scholarship that um, is being produced in Amer American universities, British universities, is kind of uh, from the outsider point of view. And, you know, it, it, the outsider point of view is important because I think it, you know, you never want to be, you know, if you're if you're too insular, if you're too much of an insider, then you can be blinded to your own flaws, right? So you, the outsider perspective is important for, uh, for the purposes of accountability, but you still need to have that kind of insider uh, sympathetic perspective. And I think the only way to do that is to kind of, you know, provide scholars like uh, to immerse them in that insider point of view, you know, like, you have to kind of um, give them um, uh, access to the community, teach them like this is how we understand these things as like people living within the tradition. And then, uh, you know, uh, provide them opportunities, you know, like whether it's fellowships or publication opportunities, uh, speaking engagements, uh, so that, you know, when they go into the academy, they can uh, carry that perspective with them. And, you know, so I think that this is um, kind of the longer term project that we need to think about. Uh, in addition to kind of, you know, uh, working within other fields where there's probably more academic flexibility to try and shift the discourse in a positive direction. 
Yeah, I totally agree. If I could just add to that, you know, there has been a concerted um, effort, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but there is documented evidence of it, of excluding schol Hindu scholar practitioners. So people who are trained in the academy, but are also practicing Hindus uh, from having a seat at the table. Um, you know, uh, in the early 2000s, there were these, um, I think before people really had a sense of how public the chat room was, you know, the internet was just beginning to create these spaces. And you saw professors openly talking about how a Hindu scholar of Hinduism or of anything related to India um, was not capable of being objective in the study of their own uh, tradition. Uh, but you didn't see that same argument being made about any other, uh, any other group, any other community. So you would, you would never see someone saying, or in that time, you wouldn't see someone saying a Jewish scholar is too close to Judaism to study Judaism. But you specifically saw this, this being perpetuated at big institutions um, about, about uh, scholar practitioners. And I think that's an important, and, and maybe I should say practitioners, scholars, because you do have this segment of, of at least Hindu Americans, I don't know about Hindus in India, who are academics first and then see this entry point of, oh, if I'm also a practitioner, but then they're taking up things, they're, they're, they're taking up notions like, you know, like the Ramayanam is, is literature. And we know that it's not literature, that it's a living text. It's not the same thing as literature. Um, and that literature has a very particular, um, I don't want to say agenda, particular ontopistemology. It exists in the space in a certain way and is read in a certain way. And that our tradition um, is embodied. It is, you know, it does take, it does have multiple entry points that are not sort of captured by this concept of literature. And so, you know, I think, um, yes, there is is giving scholars access to the emic, you know, living tradition, the emic experience of practitioners, but I think also supporting our own scholar practitioners is really important. I mean, throughout my own doctoral process, I was also a, a student of Hinduism at the same time. And that completely informed how I engaged in the space and how I constructed knowledge and constructed what it meant to be. Everything about who I am as a, as a practicing Hindu informed how I was as a scholar, um, even though I wasn't studying Hinduism. That's really interesting. So um, since we are now discussing about um, how this emerges, of course, um, we would have also discussed something regarding India, but I think there is a less in that regard. I think much of it is about uh, America and the West per se. So now one question before I go ahead with any specific aspects of what has happened or something like that. Uh, I'd like to discuss about the role of the decoloniality scholarship, which has emerged in this century and even in the past, it has emerged pretty well. Now the decolonial uh, scholarship, which is concerned with India and especially Hindus, I would say the Indic itself, the Indic framework, uh, uh, generally what happens with the decoloniality movement is that often sometimes, and again, within decoloniality, there can be various diverse formulations. I mean, there can be different in Latin America, they can be in Western Europe different, they can be Scandinavia differently, obviously with some commonalities, if there are. But 
generally um i remember one thing and i have observed this that in the decolonization movement itself and i'm focusing on the west for a while whenever it is tried to uh, you know to compare and understand how the indian decoloniality is to be understood because i think uh, there are very few scholars or people who are working in the indian aspect of decoloniality obviously the hindu aspect of decoloniality is a major subset of it but it's a different subset so i'd like to understand in the way that is the decolonial approach which is either the indian approach or the hindu approach as we say uh or maybe i would say the indic approach that's a better terminology uh is it similar to the analogous formulations of decoloniality in the americas and in the west or it has some different nuances uh because uh i mean we can discuss about it and there are factions about it so if i may be wrong in my uh i would say understanding because of the question i'm very open to feedback but again this is just a frank question and i believe we should discuss it because i think decoloniality is becoming very important not just for the people but in general also for scholarship so i'd ask dr hindu to begin and then we shall may come from sure. yeah sure thank you for the question i think it's a really important question first i think it's important to differentiate between decolonization post colonialism and decoloniality uh decolonization is this the removal of or the handing over of the administrative institutions from the colonizing government to the people who were colonized right so the institutions remain intact the logic and the um sort of social theorizing about the country remains intact you've just handed over the reins to the people of the country they and the other people have left and maybe there's some you know there are changes in in finances and all that kind of stuff and and maybe there's even um sort of like uh um that country's lipstick is put on the institution so it's given maybe different names and different things but underneath it's still pretty much you know the same institutions uh including including documents including legal processes including education all of those things pretty much remain intact and so the logic behind those institutions remains intact uh post colonialism post colonial studies in particular in the ways in which they've related to india i i um are very troubling or very problematic because they have perpetuated uh a lot of the logic as well um it i think one of the major sort of um nodes of of trouble and nodes of issues around postcolonialism uh is around this idea of the subaltern because it was predetermined to the subaltern were and that also perpetuated colonial theories about indian society and so it just it it continued to per perpetuate um the logic behind colonization even though it was called post colonial studies yeah decoloniality is a critique of post colonialism and of post modernism right and so oftentimes people will criticize decoloniality and say oh that's just post modern mumbo jumbo well that's mumbo jumbo those people have no idea what they're talking about decoloniality is an observation of um well first it's premised on this this um this foil of modernity and uh, coloniality right and so the premise of colonization is that these people are regressive oppressive the society is regressive oppressive and so they need the modern touch of the colonizer in order to liberate them in order to it's for their own good and so you constantly see this binary of modern versus traditional progress versus you know the past these 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 things are constantly 
um, evoked um, in observations about, you know, even when people talk about um, about Hindu traditions as if there is no contemporary expression of them, or it's as if it's going back in time. Um, it's that same exact foil. So there is definitely a, a concept of time and that all of everything that existed before colonization is frozen in time and that it, it has not, uh, and that it was always stuck and that the thing that moved the people forward was the colonizing hand. So it's a, it's very much, uh, uh, an, an imposition of, of value on what was there before and what's there now. And so decoloniality studies emerged from an observation of indigenous societies in Latin America rejecting this. And so it's less about um, a theory that, I mean, it's not that it's not been theorized, but it's less about a theory that emerged from the academy. It's more that it's an observation that emerged from the academy that, you know, that several scholars have put together to observe what's happening. Um, and so I think you, I think in terms of like, does it connect to movements in the Americas? Yes, in that um, the same uh, arguments are being made or the same, um, same pushback is happening, but what is being pushed back is different. Like you can't take the decolonial movement from decoloniality movement from Latin America and apply that to, to India in particular because so much of the decoloniality um, theorizing has emerged in the Americas, uh, and it 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 sort of starts off at um, Christian colonization of the Americas, and it doesn't push back far enough in history in a way that actually applies to India. That doesn't mean that it can't, but because of that, you don't necessarily get the ontological pushback. You get an epistemological pushback from decoloniality in the Americas, but ontologically everyone in the Americas has been converted to Christianity. And so there's not as much awareness of the fact, like you'll see a lot of the arguments or disagreements ar around it, not is that it doesn't really push back enough around Christianity or that becomes known. Whereas in India, I think, um, and so, so when it's applied uncritically to India from the Americas, uh, it just picks up at British colonization instead of pushing back further, further in Indian history. Um, and so there, I think it is different. And I think it has something to offer to the world because I think theoretically it, it pushes the, the historical framework of theorizing decoloniality further back than Christian colonization. And so I think there's a lot to offer and I think it is a really exciting and emergent um, field or uh, subfield uh, that we have a lot to offer the world and understanding. I think it kind of picks up where Orientalism sort of suggested in India. Great, Vishal. Would you like to have a follow up? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm not actually familiar with the uh, the body of scholarship. So you know, I'll defer to Indu on that. She's the expert. But I can, you know, there's a couple of threads just I've noticed from Hindu history that I think are relevant here that I can talk about. And so one is like, okay. Uh, so, you know, one of the dominant images in the American imagination when it comes to the Hindu, right? And I often, I use the H-I-N-D-O-O -O because the idea is that this construct or this representation was constructed independently of Hinduism and Hindus in India, right? Um, so, but, but one of the dominant images early on was this uh, juggernaut, right? When this was originally um, kind of uh, uh, published in American newspapers uh, by virtue of the writings of this uh, Scottish missionary named Claudius Buchanan. He was a chaplain with the East India Company and he was in India 
a very vivid writer. But he, uh, you know, he he wrote this um, uh, account of the Juggernaut uh, Yatra, right, which was anglicized to Juggernaut, and he published it in. Um, so he originally published it in a letter that was like republished in New England evangelical papers in America, but he kind of wrote a more fleshed out account of it in this book called Christian Researches in Asia, which was also kind of published and sold and uh, circulated extensively in America. And, um, you know, it was very vivid, very kind of uh, a, bl a bloody description, right? Like, and, and, and the way that the juggernaut was described was it was described in biblical terms, right? Because the idea being that, you know, Americans are a very Christian people. They were all kind of steeped in biblical lore. And so when he describes the juggernaut as like, you know, Moloch and like, you know, basically using this terminology, it's tapping into kind of a pre-existing imagery and a pre-existing worldview that Americans already shared, right? So they, so this this image of uh, the juggernaut as like this satanic ritual uh, was was uh, very influential in a American um, American um, perception of, of the Hindu. And um, the interesting thing is that you know he talks extensively about how human sacrifice was part of the juggernaut theatre. Like he talks about how. It was, uh, you know, the priest would basically get people and uh, make them lie down under the wheels of the Yatra and then, you know, ha have the juggernaut uh, run over them. And like this was a fabrication like this never happened. I mean, maybe there was, you know, there's a lot of people like I'm sure there were some stampedes from time to time, but it was never like a, a really religiously sanctioned thing. And the interesting thing is that as you know, so this juggernaut becomes such a prominent thing that you start getting all these people who, you know, because there's also like a you know, there's a kind of a disgust and a fascination, right? They always go together. So you start getting a lot of people who go travel, they want to see it, right? And so you get these travel writers who start going to, you know, uh, to see the Juggernaut Yatra for themselves. And they start to understand, they realize that like, oh, like there's actually not this human sacrifice. And so the narrative shifts in a very interesting way. Like rather than saying like, oh, like this was a lie, what they start saying is that, you know, there used to be this really bad human sacrifice, but then the authorities clamped down on it. And now no one dies during the Juggernaut Yatra. So it's a very like interesting kind of shift in in rhetoric and um, and and uh, and and uh, uh, and you can see the underlying motivation, right? Which is not like originally when Claudius Buchanan was writing, you know, he was writing from a position of like we need to convert these people, right? Like he was a missionary, he was a Christian, and he wanted uh, churchgoers to understand that like there's this satanic ritual going on, and we have to fund conversion activities to save them. Uh, but then you know later on when uh, it doesn't become tenable to kind of uphold this. Uh, fabrication, it turns into this uh, justification for colonial rule, right? Like, oh, like the British police clamped down on the worst aspects of the sacrifice and now nobody dies. It's very safe. Um, so there's an interesting way in which these representations of the Hindu in the Hindu history in America are kind of uh, directly tied to specific political and cultural objectives um, that are uh, that are that are uh, held by the people. And you know there 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 are numerous examples. Um, you know, uh, it, it, you know there there are numerous examples of this in Hindu history. You know, even um, so, one of the other sources that I've kind of been looking at is not just newspapers, but school textbooks, right? And this was actually one of the most eye-opening findings for me. Um, is that you know in the 19th century there was a, a a geography textbook called Mitchell's System of Modern Geography. And this was actually like one of the most widely circulated, widely used geography textbooks in American public schools in the 19th century. And it, it, it covers, um, you know, Hindu, Hinduism in India pretty extensively. So, you know, like in this time period, um, starting, and I think this started earlier, like even into the 17th century, but there's a sort of like drive to catalog everything, right? Like it's part of this like enlightenment project of collecting and catalog, cataloging uh, human knowledge. 
which you know has some positive effects too because it did open up the world to a lot of other uh, knowledge systems and and and, and uh, uh, philosophies and religions. But you know you see this kind of uh, tendency in geography textbooks from this period where they want they basically take all of these different cultures that they've been exposed to, all these different religious systems, and they start to create this like hierarchical system of like okay like there's enlightened civilizations, they're civilized there's they're civilized uh, you know cultures then you have like half civilized and then you have savage and barbaric, right? And there's this whole like taxonomy of what, where to fit different different cultures. You know, and in this taxonomy, um, you know, India and Hindus are considered half civilized. And if you read these textbooks, you know, they talk about how like, uh, you know, uh, uh, India is half civilized and it's pagan. And this paganism is intrinsically tied to its caste system, right? Like this, and, and, this, and this is like, this tie is made very explicit. And um, you know, one of the one of the books that I, I rely on quite heavily in Hindu history is this uh, book called *Heathen Hindu Hindu* by a scholar of religion named Michael Altman at the University of Alabama. And the point he makes is that this the reason um, you know the textbooks emphasize this is because they were part of a process of American identity formation. So you know, you had these students in American public schools, and the schools wanted American students to understand their superiority vis-a-vis -vis other cultures, right? And that superiority was directly tied to America's Protestant uh, culture. And that Protestantism was tied directly to egalitarianism and democracy. The idea being that America's democracy is dependent on its status as a Protestant country. And so India and the Hindu kind of emerged as a natural foil, right? So you had like egalitarian American democracy, and then you had the half civilized pagan hierarchical caste system. And these kind of were, it was a very useful contrast. Um, now, uh, and it's, it's, uh, you know, but the point being is like, you know, like this was, this, 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 uh, this foil was like, you know, kind of incorporated into education at a very early stage. And so you can see how like these ideas were kind of, uh, embedded in the cultural imagination in a very kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? persistent way, right? Because it was, it was, um, it was incorporated quite early, but, but the, but the broader point is that, I mean, it's, you see how kind of, uh, especially in America, like this um, uh, views of the Hindu representations of Hinduism were directly tied to kind of various social uh, and political objectives um, that were kind of domestic in nature. And of course, like, especially with the regards to Hinduism, like this was also tied into, you know, paranoia about uh, Catholic influence in schools in particular, right? Like one of the, one of the, um, my favorite posts uh, uh, that I would, that I uh, shared on Hindu history was a comic that was published in like Harper's Weekly in 1871. And, um, you know, I'll, uh, maybe I'll like retweet this so people listening can go on there and find it. But it's a very interesting comic. And it's one of these things that you saw, I saw it initially. And I was just like, I was kind of taken aback because it's such a strange juxtaposition of images. But if you look at the comic, you know, there's basically like a river and it, it's labeled the American Ganges. And on the banks of this river, there's like a, a, a Protestant pastor and he has a group of children behind him. And he's like, you know, trying to protect them. And then you see these uh, like reptilian bishops crawling out of the river. Like you can see they have the kind of distinctive Catholic hats. And then you have like a Vatican in the background and an American public school in the background. And so, you know, you see this and you're like, well, it's such a strange juxtaposition, juxtaposition of images. Like what is an American Ganges? Like why is all this Catholic imagery? And um, the explanation was is that, you know, there was a lot of kind of uh, paranoia in America about Catholic influence in public institutions. Um, and this kind of tied in with this anti-Hindu prejudice, right? Because the idea was that like, look, if you allow the Catholics to infiltrate our schools and our culture, then like we'll become like the Hindus, you know, 
because they were kind of both seen as these sort of like polytheistic pagan cultures, Hinduism being a more extreme example. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's a long winded uh, manner of making a, the point that like, it's, I think, you know, often when we see these representations in America, we often go immediately to India when often, when in my view, like really the, this is a, a, an American story first and foremost, right? And I think it's important to understand the specific American history that is behind these different representations. And you can see it if you just look through, you know, not just how, um, you know, uh, the Hindu history stuff I'm talking about, but, you know, we broaden your perspectives and you look at, you know, the kind of challenges that Italian Americans or Irish Americans faced when they first came to this country. And you see a lot of interesting parallels, you know, in how, um, uh, in how like public perception shifted um, in response to those kinds of um, in incorporate incorporation of new immigrant groups. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, th there's certainly a lot of uh, material of interest there. If I could just add a little nerdy American educational history context to what you're saying, because it's really fascinating. If you look at what was happening in American education in the late 19th century, early 20th century, because you didn't have universal mandatory education, mandatory universal education until the 1920s in the US. Um, but before then you had um, sort of what we might recognize now as like elite schooling for the elite. So the people who studied the arts, people who studied literature, people who, you know, society saw were going to be the leaders. Those are the ones who had access to what might most, most resemble what we see now as school. Everyone else had religious school, right? So the poor immigrants had their Catholic schools. Um, Post-emancipation, uh, um, formerly enslaved people developed their own schools, which were, there's a whole complex history on how those were, that was taken over. But those were also largely emerging from Bible schools. They were largely emerging. And so what's interesting there is that there is a, first of all, there's a racial divide there already. And I think the Indian narrative that you're talking about feeds nicely into it because the elite white Protestant kids were attending these schools. They were the ones who needed to be saved from both the black and the white Catholics that were in separate schools. And then on top of that, um, Indians were like the most evil example they could think of to say like, that's that's where your kids could be headed if, if they head in that direction. And then post, you know, in the early early 20th century, when you had these waves of, of immigration from, from Europe, um, you find instructions to teachers and teacher education programs that their job is to assimilate. And their job is to strip immigrants of all of their dirty habits, of all of their ideas from, you know, from their home countries. And by dirty immigrants, we're talking about Italians and Irish people first, you know, we're not talking about who, um, who we might consider, you know, like, um, who we might associate with dirty based on on race, these were who we now consider to be white. And it was even to the detriment, like, teachers were instructed to do so even if it meant that kids no longer related to their own parents. Like you find actual instructions to teachers to do this. So it's like really fascinating, right? That like now we're seeing the same thing happening with with Hindu kids in schools in the US that you find this tension arising between children and their parents um, because of what they're learning in school about their own traditions. Yeah, the continuity and the thread through it is really, really fascinating. And that those kids are considered coconuts. So, right? Like it's all really, yeah. really fascinating stuff.
Yeah, there's definitely a longer, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a more comprehensive, there's like a, you know, there's a dissertation in there, if not, if not a book, you know, um, but I think there's a lot to be learned there. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So we'll now go ahead, maybe with the next segment, where we would be discussing some aspects of how Hindu phobia has perpetuated. And of course, uh, since Vish Vishal has obviously given an amazing example from Hindu history, I suggest people should really read the thread. Um, but before we go ahead, I just have a quick question because uh, one of my colleagues did ping me and uh, they're watching his life. So this question is to Vishal specifically. Uh, he loves the Hindu history thread, thread I would say. And the question that, uh, and I really liked it, so I definitely would like to go ahead with it. Is that, okay, fine. Uh, much of your uh, tweets from Hindu history are concerned with like, okay, what was in the past 20th century American society typically, or mm -hmm. the emerging 1990s and so, so forth. So uh, how do you see uh, the, uh, you know, the relevance of the thread itself? Hindu history itself for a multicultural society like America, because earlier it was not that much. Now it is very much. I mean, America is said to be kind of, but yeah. So how do you think about it considering the 21st century? Yeah. aspect? It's a great question. And, you know, I think um, one of the things that I've, that's been most enlightening to me following the Hindu history is, and I think this is the value of kind of looking at newspaper clips because I basically just go chronologically, you know, like I'll, I'll look up certain keywords and I go year by year seeing how those those keywords show up in articles and um the value the value in that is you start seeing how you know threads evolve over time so you know i think that from the very beginning right like sorry this is if i i hope you don't mind if i'm just gonna kind of take my time and do a little bit of a i'll just give the intellect the context here right so i think from the very beginning um in hindu history you see kind of three prominent threads of how Hinduism is received in America. So the first is like this Claudius Buchanan, I call it like the temple of doom thread, right? Like this is the, you know, the, the Hindu pagans are, you know, savages and you need to convert them. And they do all this crazy human sacrifice. You know, they're throwing their kids in the river. That's pretty prominent. And that remains quite prominent, um, you know, over time. You also have like two other threads, right? You have uh, this sort of like what I'd call like the, uh, the capitalist or mercantile thread, you know, like America was trading with India pretty early and, you know, it is a very enterprising country. And, you know, like I said before, like whenever there's any sort of disgust, there's always fascination right next to it. Right. And so even when, um, you know, there, you had all these missionary reports about, you know, these like Hindu priests using hypnotism and magic, it's actually very interesting because what you start seeing in American newspapers is a proliferation of ads for Hindu magicians, right? Do so you basically start finding American and British magicians who claim to have gone to India and learned this magic from fakirs and priests, and they bring it back to America and they start hosting exhibitions around the country, you know, saying that I've learned Hindu magic. So you have this trope of the Hindu wizard or the Hindu magician become very common um, across American uh, culture, which is pretty fascinating on its uh, on its own terms. But, you know, you see this kind of a capitalist, um, um, uh, 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 this emergence of like a kind of capitalist uh, uh, embrace of, of, of Hinduism, right? even if it's kind of like in a corrupted way. But uh, so, you know, so you have the kind of temple of doom, you have this capitalist thread, and then you also have the intellectual, the elite kind of reception, right? Which, you know, from the, the Asiatic society was started in like 1784. And so you start getting this steady stream of translations of Sanskrit texts that arrive in American shores. 
And you also have contemporaneously, right, like this kind of project um, of uh, this enlightenment project of comparative religion. And, you know, this is something that was, uh, you know, the founding fathers were very interested in this too, right? Like uh, figures like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, like they were committed deists, right? This idea that, you know, they were really like believers in the power of human reason, the scientific method, and they were trying to find religion that was consistent with these principles, right? And so they were really drawn to this like English deism, which is this, uh, you know, the idea that God doesn't uh, directly intervene in the world because for God to intervene in the world that is in contravention of these sort of principles of the scientific method and of rationality. So God becomes kind of this like ultimate rational principle that just sets things up and everything just works, you know, according to his will. But they were very interested in kind of religious philosophy generally and, and exposure to these new ideas. So like they were actually, you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had extensive correspondence about John Adams studies of Hinduism, you know. So there was a scholar named Joseph Priestley. He was actually like a chemist by profession, but he also wrote comparative religion, books in comparative religion. And he um, was, wrote a book called like The Comparison of Institutes of Moses, something, something. It's a very long title. I can't, you can look it up. But um, John, if you look at the, if you look up the copy of this book on archive.org, the copy that's on there is actually John Adams' personal copy. And you can see his annotated marginalia in there. So, you know, he was reading about Hinduism, like, you know, very early on in American history, which again, is like one of these things where like you read that and you're, it's kind of taken aback. Like who knew that, you know, John Adams was interested in this stuff. But the idea is that there was always kind of a prominent segment of American society concentrated among the New England elite that were very interested in, especially like Vedanta, you know, like the Gita, uh, Upanishads, because if for this, um, the, the philosophical ideals of Hindu spirituality resonated with their own kind of quest for, you know, um, uh, a philosophical divinity, right? Um, so a lot of these people were also Unitarians, you know, you see the same, like, you know, a lot of the kind of uh, uh, the transcendentalist movement, like, you know, uh, Christian science, a lot of it emerged out of the same milieu of people. And they were all heavily influenced by Hindu spirituality. So, you know, you have these three threads and they emerge very early on. And I think one of the uh, really interesting things that I've noticed in Hindu history is seeing how they uh, interplay. So I'll give you one prominent example. So you see these three threads, three, three threads kind of evolving in parallel. And then Swami Vivekananda comes to America in 1893. And this is kind of like you see a sea change, right? So Swami Vivekananda comes to 1893. He gives a speech at the World Parliament. He goes on a, he goes on a tour in America, gives a bunch of speeches, is very popular, right? Like his speeches are very well attended. There's a lot of uh, protests too. Like, uh, you know, Dr. Jeffrey Long, he's a professor of religion here in Pennsylvania. And he, he has a book called Hinduism in America. That's very interesting. And he talks about how like uh, Swami Vivekananda um, is a good example of this kind of binary reaction to Hinduism in America because all of his speeches were very uh, well attended, but uh, virtually every speech he gave, there were protests outside by conservative Christian groups who were kind of opposed to, you know, his uh, spreading the gospel as it were. But so Swami Vivekananda, you know, he goes on this tour and then he's kind of followed by a whole stream of different Swamis and spiritual figures from India associated with the Ramakrishna mission and, uh, you know, otherwise. And they become very popular figures, you know, and the American newspapers, you see the cultural reaction emerge in real time. So you start seeing these Swamis and they're traveling around America and they start attracting like not just crowds, but crowds of people who are from the top echelons of American society, particularly women, right? Like socialite women, like the wives of, you know, rich uh, American you know, they're the ones who are drawn most to, you know, the Vedanta society. They're the ones who are drawn most to yoga. And you see a very like 
um, I, I would say like a kind of uh, stark cultural reaction to this, right? So you start seeing a lot of reports in American newspapers in the early 20th century uh, accusing these swamis of being frauds, right? You see people accusing these swamis of basically cheating American women out of their money. You see a lot of these accounts of like American women falling into these, uh, you know, cults as they're called, and then like going insane, leaving their husbands, you know. There's one example I posted about where, uh, you know, the president, there was a president of Purdue University, his name was Winthrop Stone. Purdue University is a university here in, I think, Indiana. It's a, it's a good college. And uh, so he was the president of that university from like 1900 to 1920. And his, his wife, he was married to this German lady and she uh, ended up like taking some sort of like philosophy of yoga class at Purdue. And uh, the, the teacher, I guess, I don't know, he was some sort of like, he was into this, you know, Hindu spirituality or whatever. But anyway, she takes this course and she kind of gets into it and she starts, she ends up leaving her husband to join some cult in Papua New Guinea, right? <laughs> That's like somehow related to yoga and Hindu philosophy or whatever. But then you have all these American newspapers like with these blazing headlines about how like Hinduism led this woman to leave his good good husband, you know, like it's robbing this uh, American husband of his loyal wife. So you see this 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 kind of cultural paranoia start to emerge about Hinduism ruining Amer like marriages, basically like tricking women, um, stealing their money and their reason. It's a, it's a pretty stark cultural reaction. But the point is like, this is an example of how when, once the kind of elite uh, reception reaches a certain critical mass and you start seeing a lot of interest in kind of Hindu spirituality, you see this kind of uh, the, the volume on the Temple of Doom thread increases and you start seeing the kind of uh, the atrocity literature really like start to ratchet up. And I think one of the climactic moments is, and I posted extensively about this essay is in 1911, uh, this uh, writer named uh, Mabel Potter Daggett, she wrote this essay uh, called The Heathen Invasion of America. And you can go read, I, I've posted the excerpts of this on the, on the Twitter account, but the whole thing is about like, you know, these swamis came in, and uh, they proved a lot more attractive than like the traditional American pastor. They started attracting a lot of like, you know, especially rich socialite women into their circles. And, you know, uh, they, she says specifically that yoga and these philosophies are kind of like packaged in a way that's appealing, but they're just gateways to heathenism, right? And so this is the kind of narrative that they, that they, that the, that you see emerge um, and, and it becomes quite prominent. So, uh, I mean, again, this is all an illustration. The point I'm trying to make is that you have these threads that are established very early and they never disappear, right? Like they change, the dynamic changes, they intertwine and interact in different ways. But, you know, they are they they, they are fundamentally like, uh, you know, these the, the persistent threads in American society and culture. And so when you ask like, what is the relevance today? I think like what I'm trying to illustrate through Hindu history is the idea that like attitudes don't emerge from a vacuum, right? Like they are, they they build on previous attitudes. Um, they uh, are they're organic in in the sense that they react to developments in the society, um, and you know they're persistent. So I think that one of the things that is uh, kind of been eye opening for me is understanding like how these threads still interact, still persist today, and you know what are the underlying social and cultural dynamics that are um, kind of uh, leading to you know the various manifestations that we do see. Because you certainly see that throughout the 19th and 19th and uh, our 20th centuries, you know, and I don't think that there's any reason to believe that we're any different now. Like, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that, that is a, a long winded answer, but that is the relevance I see in Hindu history today. Um, if I could just so many things, first of all, your 
memory is incredible. So I'm a little bit astonished right now, but um, for names and dates and things. So I'm just <laughs> astonished by that. But um, I think I think yoga is a really interesting space. And I think Hindu history picks up on that really nicely because um, not only has that thread continued, but it's sort of flourished and become a lot more sophisticated because you have, now you have these, um, these conversations about yoga um, that, whereas historically what you're talking about is how people entering the yoga space, their their worldview uh, changes. Their, their, so you're talking actually about epistemological changes. You're talking about people actually understanding, whereas now the, the sort of disruption of yoga in, in from the, the quote progressive side is around inclusion. So it's about identity. So who gets to do yoga? Not even about what yoga is, and then based on who gets to do yoga, and then continuing to pick up on those same threads of the um, the threatening brown yoga teacher, male teacher who is threatening to the white female yoga practitioner. That same exact trope continues, uh, and the the Me Too movement, which you know I'm not critiquing women speaking up, obviously, and of course I believe women who have experienced assault. Uh, so it's not a broad critique of the Me Too movement, but the particular way in which the yoga, the the quote post lineage yoga community, which seeks to sort of sever yoga from its roots, from its source tradition, um, has picked up on that trope of the white yoga woman endangered by the brown yoga teacher, uh, in order to liberate yoga from the clutches of the so it's not just, it's not about don't do yoga, it's about yoga actually belongs to everybody, which is reinforced by a lot of people in India who see yoga as soft power. They're also saying yoga is for everybody. Um, but what's happening in the US now is that, well, yoga is for everybody except for those repressive, oppressive Hindus. Um, and so that's really, really fascinating because um, because it's now it's not now that we don't want from the, from the progressive side, it's not that we don't want yoga, it's that we want yoga for ourselves. And then on the other extreme, you have Alabama saying, we don't wanna do yoga because it is Hindu. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's just really fascinating to see how everyone seems to have an opinion about it, but the opinion of Hindus is like systemically pushed to the side. Um, Really yeah, one of the one of, one of the earliest appearances of yoga in the Hindu history is actually this. Uh, it's 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 quite uh, it's quite telling, right? Is that um, so? There's a it's like a literally like a an idol. I mean, it's what it is, but it's called the yoga. So you see this conflation of of attitudes uh, towards the Hindu, but there's it's literally an idol, and it's called the yoga. And the way it's sold is uh, it's a tool for concentration. <laughs> so like the the it's a, it's an ad in a newspaper that says like buy the yoga. And it'll help you in your business dealings because it'll improve your concentration. And so I mean, uh, it, it's it, it's a, it's a really wonderful ad. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, yoga, I think, is one of the greatest. It's a, it's a it's a great example. And, and I think certainly seeing a lot of the rhetoric around it today, like resonates with uh, the stuff that I'm seeing in the Hindu history. I mean, it was there was a lot of uh, paranoia about the emergence of yoga in America in the early 20th century. And actually, this is one of the reasons why. Uh, the Christian yoga movement, that's how it kind of was originally sold, right? Is that, because I think yeah. that uh, a lot of the early practitioners of yoga understood that there was this uh, link to uh, Hindu religion and they they knew that 
you know, the public had negative views about that. So they, they, they uh, deliberately characterized it as Christian yoga um, to kind of uh, cleanse it of its, you know, Hindu uh, link. And, uh, you know, not that that stopped, you know, that didn't stop people from saying like, you know, what are these crazy pagans doing with their weird, uh, you know, uh, yoga rituals or whatever. But it, it, I think it, it speaks to the kind of uh, uh, public, the general public view at the time. Another really interesting thing that emerges um, that's related is around meditation and the pushback against meditation from from Christian Americans about meditation in schools because they call it devil worship. Um, and so, of course, meditation is turning inward to the self. And so the natural conclusion is that the self is the devil. And so you immediately arrive at this whole conceptualization of the self. And Hindus are like, well, no, we don't believe that the self is evil or mm -hmm the devil, but that's that's literally the argument is that it's devil worship. So we're like meditation is not an outward prayer to a different God, it's an, it's a turning inward. And so I just find it, I find it really sad and amusing that this is the argument that's made to take meditation out of schools. Uh, so all of these Christians apparently believe that these little devils need to not turn inward. <laughs> <laughs> So as I said, I think it went into flow and I just completely forgot what to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, these are really interesting instances. In fact, I tried to share one of the threads since we were talking about it just recently. Mm -hmm. So let's now discuss, since we have already covered yoga, a bit of it, I believe. And uh, I don't think we should now discuss Christian yoga. We should discuss something else. Um, my question will be about the universities per se getting directly into what is the context of this podcast. So now we know that um, there have been certain specific cases about the, I would say, international students from India or the Indian Americans, or I would say Indians in the West, to be fair enough, who have been affected. And uh, we see instances that scholars deny, and we know this trend that has been going on. And we can definitely discuss about how people criticize and oppose and so, so forth. But if we try to understand the the trend, number one, and number two, if the trend is there, then how the trend is perpetuating. Because my fair understanding is that most of this happens in the Anglosphere, which is America, UK, Australia. I don't see that much in the continental Europe. I don't see that much in, just giving a funny example, Russia. But I'm just saying that it happens generally in the Anglosphere. So... Um, I would direct it to Dr. Hindu first. So my question will be in this way. Uh, first of all, if there is a trend which we see, if we see the incidents of various scholars who have been writing about it and obviously the students who have been affected, how do you see that has developed and uh, what commonalities do you see? And then obviously within that, we can talk about the specific cases. We shall can also give a follow up. So I think let's go ahead with that. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think there is a trend for sure. Um, and I've I've checked with other people to make sure that it's not just in my mind, but for sure there's been a trend, I think since 2014, but then definitely since, since August, 2019, uh, absolutely there's been a trend. And I think um, it's important to recognize that a lot of this is premised upon the denial and erasure of Hindu persecution, right? It, that ties in directly with with August 2019 onwards and the legislation in India, both both big pieces of legislation and the ways in which they're understood 
in the US. And so um, it, it goes back to how I was describing um, the sort of circular logic of, of Hindu phobia earlier, which is um, the existence of Hindu phobia is denied because the people who propagate these ideas say that this is a legitimate assessment of Hinduism and Hindus, and therefore anyone that pushes against this only, the only legitimate assessment of Hindus and Hinduism are seeking to perpetuate oppression on other people uh, and their own people and our own people. And so, um, and so you see this denial of Hindu phobia and the denial of Hindu persecution and anyone who says otherwise. And then also interestingly, you see amongst Hindus, you know, why are you playing the victim card? We're not like other groups, right? Which is also a denial of persecution because, you know, naming things that have happened to Hindus is not playing a victim card. It's simply a statement of fact. And without those facts, it's really hard for people to understand uh, the context within which um, all everything that we've been talking about has been developed. I mean, it's it is the silencing of voices. It is the silencing of histories that allows these things to take root. Um, and so, I prefer to think of Hindus as survivors. Uh, and and so, in order to be a survivor, you need to talk about what what we've survived and how we survived and why we've survived, uh, and that we're worthy of survival. Um, in terms of how it manifests, I think I think you definitely have more, you know, with 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 social media, you definitely have the line between uh, academic and activist being blurred. Um, it's interesting for me because I do see a lot of critique from in, from from India uh, saying that academics should not be activists, that you know they should be neutral. And I think the idea that any kind of knowledge production is neutral is untethered to the reality of knowledge production. Everyone is coming from some kind of a bias. I think recognizing your bias is a lot more useful than pretending to be neutral um, and recognizing like who your commitments are to and, and what your tendencies are, what your proclivities are, what your philosophy is, all of those things. You know, whether or not your father and husband are mis Christian missionaries in India, all of those things are really relevant things that you need to, to make transparent before you make any statements about anything as opposed to pretending to be neutral. Um, and so I think the culmination of like un, um, un, uh, bulletproof departments of South Asian studies and Indology that have been that have been developed for so long and perpetuating these ideas for so long. The attack on Indian identity with the the increased use of South Asian as an identity and not just a region. Which you know, when I was in college in the in the early nineties, like people weren't identifying as South Asian. I didn't see it. Like I was, all the associations were Indian American associations. There there was nothing really about South Asia. Um, I didn't. I don't know if when that kind of picked up, but I, I don't know if that was the case for you, Vishal, when you were in college. But it just didn't exist when I was in college. So just the blurring of of identities um, has also, and then has also supported this, the denial of Hindu history uh, and Hindu persecution, um, the the particular ways in which uh, Indian legislation is understood. And then um, the ways in which, and, and you brought this up earlier with the sort of Dalit Lives Matter um, hashtag, I think it's the really intellectually dishonest um, picking up of um, American social realities or theories and retrofitting Indian society into that 
in ways that are untethered to reality. But if people don't know what the actual reality is, then they don't know any different. And so all of that, I think, has just allowed this to proliferate um, in ways, again, that, that come down to middle school students. I mean, in 2016, I think it was 2016, you had uh, Hindu American students testifying before the California Board of Education uh, about the ways in which misrepresentations of Hinduism were affecting their lived experience of being Hindus in schools. And you had, I mean, I think this is even on YouTube still because these were public hearings. You had South Asian studies professors publicly mocking like fourth grade students testifying and calling them, you know, brainwashed children of, of Hindu terrorist immigrant parents um, and, and getting away with it. You know, this is happening right in front of us. Um, anyone mocking any child of, of any, I, I mean, like that's absolutely absurd that that could happen. Um, and yet, yet it's happening. And so then of course, I think the other aspect of what's allowed this to happen is the, the other day someone asked how the Hindu American community had done at organizing. And I, I said, I think a better question would be like, how good are we at disorganizing? <laughs> um, I think, um, I think our proclivity to uh, independent thought and valuing independence of thought, which is not a bad thing, uh, makes it hard to, to organize, but we have too many chiefs, not enough Indians <laughs> um, in Indian organizing. Um, and so I think we need to, we need to kind of figure all of that stuff out. And I do think that having, I don't want to make these sort of, uh, generalizations, but I think you, you do find that a lot of, um, a lot of the folks who are making these social observations about Hindu American society and theorizing about Hinduism and Hindu society in the United States are not necessarily coming from, from being practicing Hindus are not necessarily um, versed in social, they're not coming from the humanities or the social sciences, they're coming from IT and, and the business world. And so um, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have the chops to engage academically with these things. And I think that's to our detriment. So I think uh, we need to see more, more, more people engaging in this in an academic and like very rigorous um, study of these things um, and learning how to organize and learning how to form allyships and not just reducing everything to victim shaming, victim blaming, victim playing the victim card, all of these things that you see, you see these, these these things that are like very much the way that American society functions for, for better or worse being misapplied to Indian society. And then those misapplications are used as a critique of American society. So it's like this reverse conflation happening and um, it just doesn't make any sense. Like I see a lot of the commentary about American society coming from India and I'm like, I'm not gonna try to make any commentary about the ground reality of India, but like y'all, really shouldn't be making any commentary about the ground reality of the United States because what you're saying is completely untethered to, to what's happening. Um, so I think that's not a necessarily a coherent response, but it's a bunch of thoughts. Yes, Vishal, please go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a, a, lot, a lot going on there, but I think um, definitely like there is this sort of so, you know, recently, you know, it was the anniversary of the Operation Searchlight, right, in Bangladesh, uh, uh, Liberation War in 1971. And, uh, you know, I kind of 
was uh, uh, I kind of uh, was uh, triggered, as they say, because a lot of these progressive, quote unquote, progressive Hindu organizations didn't didn't commemorate that event at all, right? Like, there's an organization called Sadhana, then there's Hindu Hindus for Human Rights, and these are organizations that purport to represent Hindu interests, right, from a progressive point of view, which is totally great, and we need that, right? But the, you know, the fact that they put themselves out there as Hindu organizations, but they're unwilling to commemorate, you know, the killing, exile, rape of millions of, you know, Bangladeshi Hindus is to me like, I don't understand how you can even claim to have a shred of credibility after something like that. You know, like if, if you're, you know, I, and I think this is what often happens is that you have this sort of like um, the kind of, uh, to the extent that, you know, you have people in or who are in the public sphere that are Hindu or, uh, you know, of Hindu background and, they claim to be, um, you know, coming from a progressive perspective. You often have the situation where it's the progressivism that kind of just is on top every single time, and the the, the Hindu identity and the Hindu interest is subjugated to that progressivism at every turn, right? So, like, you know, there, and and so I think this is what leads to this kind of steady erasure or unwilling to recognize actual instances of of, of Hindu uh, persecution. Um, Bangladesh being like the mo a very prominent example, right? Like, this is not it's not controversial. It happened like there are people alive that live through it, you know, like it's extensively documented. Like we have uh, American diplomatic, uh, you know, correspondents talking about what's going on. Um, and, and, and yet we have organizations that are unwilling to even say like, you know, we were, we were remembering the victims of this horrible, horrible uh, historical event. And, you know, we want to honor their memories. Like that shouldn't be controversial. And the fact that it is, I think speaks to just how uh, debased uh, the kind of, um, uh, discourse is in in the West when it comes to Hinduism. And yeah, I think part of it is like, there's a, a, a really underlying it, an unwillingness to even acknowledge a collective Hindu identity, right? Like, like to the extent that these, the, the persecution is relevant to this narrative, it's you know, only relevant if you can uh, fit it into this kind of progressive narrative, right? Otherwise it's like, it, it doesn't matter. And I think, you know, this is related to also this like proliferation of the South Asian, South Asian identity. You know, I, it's, I, I, it is one of the most bizarre things that, you know, I've just kind of seeing in real time the proliferation of the South Asian identity. I mean, obviously, as a geographic entity, like makes total sense, right? If you're talking about South Asia as a region, but to identify like a South Asian culture, I mean, it's it makes no sense, right? Like, what is that? Like, what is the actual referent? It's 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 very strange, you know, and I and my point has always been like, you know, especially like in politics, you know, I think that it's really um uh, frustrating because I think that, you know, there's uh, on the one hand, uh, the diaspora has a real desire to engage with politics in the subcontinent and they, you know, have, uh, they want to have an impact on political developments there. But on the other hand, there's like a unwillingness to actually engage with the realities of the situation in any sort of, uh, significant way. And you actually see this, like this comes out in the numbers too, right? I mean, you look at, um, you know, the Carnegie, uh, 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 I, I'm forgetting the whole name of the organization, but you know they uh, they they do a lot of research on South Asia. Milan Vaishnav, he, he he you know he he runs it, but they really sees like uh, interesting surveys on like the uh, South Asian diaspora in America, and uh, you know you look at like the the kind of their attitudes towards like India, their attitudes about like whether India is on the right track, and then you kind of look at the corresponding numbers from India, and you can see like there's dramatic difference, right? Like. You know, uh, like Indians in India are much more optimistic about India than Indian Americans are about India, right? And part of this, I think, reflects the fact that like we're living in a parallel world, right? Like the the, the South Asia is a, a construct of our own making. 
that people are interacting with and talking about, but it's a fantasy, right? It's totally detached from the ground realities of India. And so I think that it's really, you know, uh, doing ourselves a disservice because it prevents us from engaging with social and political realities and having an actual impact on the intellectual discourse in a meaningful way. Like the diaspora just seems to be content with kind of playing in this fantasy land that is, um, you know, consistent with kind of American political uh, uh, worldviews that, uh, but doesn't really have like any sort of like ability to product pro to productively influence uh, politics on the ground in India. But yeah, you know, it is. Um, it, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of strangeness uh, going on for sure. But you know, at the end of the day, like, and this is the point I always come back to. You know, like, especially with regards to the kind of um, you know the organizations I was talking about earlier that purport to represent Hindu interests, like you know, it's very easy to kind of blame them and, you know, uh, accost them for not standing up for what we perceive to be our interests. But ultimately that's, you know, there's no objective reality there, right? Like our subjective understanding of what our interests are and like our histories and, you know, what we, the memories that we want to preserve, like, you know, that only exists subjectively for us. And until we kind of uh, create that consensus among the community that like, you know, this is what's important to us. These are kind of our values and our interests. It's, it's very difficult to kind of uh, challenge that consensus narrative that's emerging, right? Um, and it's very easy for those organizations to kind of find a foothold because they don't challenge any sort of prevailing narratives. They just kind of like, it's just, they just plug into whatever the consensus is and they kind of uh, add a legitimizing voice to that consensus, right? Rather than saying like, no, like we agree with you guys in your overall moral ethical framework, but we're here to add something that you're not aware of previously, right? which is that we do have this history and we want to make sure that people are aware of it and we want to make make sure people understand it when they're kind of looking at India in when it comes to contemporary events. That's, I think, what the critical piece that's missing for us currently. So, yeah, we, a lot of work to do, I guess. I think a part of that also is just um, people want to be seen as good people. And so these organizations are like, we're the ones who are the good Hindus. Um, and they're concerned with that and they know how to, to craft that image. Um, and so if, if you don't know that much and you don't know that much about Indian politics, but you want to be a good, a good Hindu and not one of the bad ones, then you just go along with the people who seem to know what they're talking about. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of ignorance at play. Great. Uh, Vishal, would you like to give a follow up? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that uh, that covers it. I mean, I think I think that's right. You know, um, I'd hope that you know the diaspora. Like, I think we just have a, you know, if, if you know, to the extent that you want to have an actual impact, like you have to, you know, you have to engage with the ground realities. You know, and I think uh, this is a, uh, you know, in some ways maybe parallels the, uh, the 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 trials and tribulations of the Indian opposition, right? Like, is like their unwillingness to actually engage with the ground realities, right? And uh, this is why you know Rahul Gandhi is giving uh, interviews to you know, Harvard or whatever, like instead of focusing on campaigning, you know, but I think there's, it's an interesting sort of parallel. Like there just seems to be a, a kind of a, a willful blindness to what's actually, what's actually happening. And, uh, you know, and I think that goes regardless of what your ideological um, inclinations are, right? Like if, we're, if you want to push uh, any the discussion in any direction, you have to kind of engage with the realities. Otherwise you're not going to persuade anyone. So that's, that's kind of my, uh, my pitch for, you know, we need to forget about South Asia and focus more on India, I think. Yeah, and I think I think um, what's interesting is like now we have the the reporters, the colonial reporters are the 
if you know what what Michelle likes to call the Princeton Prius, the the, <laughs> yeah. the sort of like upper crust English speaking people who know how to say things in the right way, but like with the right amount of Indian accent, but still fluent in English, you know, um, reporting the ground reality in India. Um, yeah. And I and I think the language is a huge part of it because um, they're translating for us here. Um, I think it would be really interesting to see local language video footage or reportage uh, being translated for the American audience. Uh, I think that's a really powerful entry point into actual grand realities that we don't really get that much. Um, so I think that would be uh, an interesting way to unpack it because my experiences, and I think Michelle, you've had similar experiences is that outside of the social media sphere, when you're actually interacting with people, there is a lot of curiosity. There's just, people don't necessarily know which sources they can trust, you know? But I think if you were to see someone showing something happening on the ground or reporting their own life happening on the ground in a regional, in a local language in India, um, I think that would be very different than than reading about an interview of that person in an English speaking um, or in an English language journal. Um, I think there is more curiosity. I think um, that's my experience, at least, is that either uh, people are not willing to or don't know how to talk about it or translate it for people here, not literally the language, but translate the situation. Um, it's It's even though you can't map India onto the US, you still have to kind of make it understandable to the US born and bred like mind. Uh, and I think we don't necessarily have the outlets to do that. And oftentimes the outlets that people turn to in India, the, the popular ones, um, their commentary in the US is so absurd that they completely delegitimize. And, and I was talking to a friend about this yesterday, like the New York Times commentary in India is pretty absurd but no one's gonna stop reading the New York Times in the US because of the no progressive person because sometimes their commentary about the US is pretty spot on. And so they have some credibility there, but these, but unfortunately the, the Indian outlets don't necessarily have the same, um, what's the word? Um, they, don't, they don't enjoy that same benefit because as soon as you see one of these, these outlets saying something absolutely absurd about the US, they're like, oh, well, I can't trust that source even about things related to India. And so I think people don't even necessarily know where to, to look for, for actual information. And so they just go with what they can. I mean, I can definitely agree on the point because uh, most of the time what happens is that most of the platforms in India, which are you know regionally spread across, I mean, it can be newspaper, it can be mass media, it can be digital media. The real issue is that even if they try to do it, um, Generally, and again, it is my observation. I could be wrong. I could be right. I don't know. But generally, what I see is that uh, once this happens, either they try to shove it up in some kind of ideological aspect. That, okay, fine. We are in that ideological frame and so, so forth. Or sometimes uh, a, a lack of direct communication comes in. Now, we know that there have been protests happening in India in near the border of the end city of Delhi for a long time. But we also know that there are countries where such incidents like these happen, riots or anything like that. Uh, protests have been happening in Germany. Protests have happened in Northern Ireland recently. And I think these incidents are quite normal. I think oh, we need to see how this goes ahead. But one thing is for sure that um, 
their problem of covering india or any other countries like okay fine we are a developed country or like something like that we will just manage it but for other states in the global south i don't know why that approach comes in but maybe if we refer to hindu history in general i think much can be understood that they have a colonial bias so um i think we are nearly coming to the last segment of this podcast and this last segment is dedicated much enough to uh the other forms of events and the other forms of scholarship obviously with some suggestions what suggestions can we give and how we can understand it now um we have been seeing that um there have been general works about uh, issues related to caste discrimination and so so forth and they have been for centuries i mean we know that but since they have been there the real problem that comes in is that often uh, and again i think we have discussed this in in the past in this podcast itself but still i wish to emphasize it more into it because of the reason that i think it's important that people make these usual parallels like that dalit life matter thing and so so forth and we see these parallels very common um now we understand that yes there's a big lack of communication and the lack of communication is obviously there i mean it could happen with even any local african newspaper if they are were not very good in communication for example so that is something which is obvious enough uh despite this um if we see the current incident and i would uh, specifically point out um the incident where uh, students of rajas university have been affected particularly uh first of all if we need alternative scholarship and uh, we definitely are on the consensus that we should be how should we approach it now obviously uh, um, we can differ we can you know we can uh, differently understand on which field where it comes in like vishal rightly pointed out that south asia as a region is perfectly fine it includes the sarc members particularly but obviously as an identity and culture it is very weird it's very vague uh, sometimes even it feels uh, um, amazingly weird because uh, i can give many examples and even cuisine or anything and we can come up with that so in that sense uh, how should we see and i would uh, ask vishal to go at first and then maybe we can have the concluding part so the question is like how do we develop an alternative kind of alternative scholarship yeah i mean i think that you know one thing that's you know academia is important right at the end of the day like these are institutions that are developed and built specifically to regulate knowledge production they have uh, you know there are obviously it's not perfect but there are mechanisms for like peer review and there's a you know like there's they there's a mechanism for determining quality which is important right um so you can't ignore it um so you know i think one of the points i i made earlier that i uh that i would just emphasize you know is that academics you know uh even though we kind of consider it uh, you know above uh the rest of us lowly uh capitalist uh you know worker bees you know academia academia is, is still incentive driven right i mean at the end of the day you have scholars who are spending a decade of their lives or more you know doing a phd getting a postdoc and uh you know they uh, want need to make a living you know and so they're incentive driven in the sense that like look there we have to just accept the reality and not be naive about it you know like there are people in the field that have a lot of influence a lot of the way you know these fields the way these fields work is that you know you have people of influence their recommendation letters are what kind of get you through the door and get you the prestigious fellowships and the you know the, the tenure track faculty positions and you know and, and and the nature of your scholarship matters too right like when you are uh, sitting before a, a job committee and 
they're thinking about hiring you, like they care about what your point of view is, you know, like they want to make sure that you, uh, you know, especially the established faculty, like want to make sure that, you know, you're kind of a, a consonant with their point of views, you know, and uh, you're not going to rock the boat too much. So, you know, academics are incentive driven. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, currently uh, the incentives are such that, you know, the, the, Trisky, the Trisky is just like a symptom, right? I mean, she's a particularly egregious example because of her public persona and because of her kind of speaking engagements. But, you know, she's not like a, she's not an anomalous in, uh, from a kind of ideological point of view, right? Like she's symptomatic of a, of a larger problem. And so, you know, I think um, the mistake that Hindu Americans often make, and I see this all the time, is that, you know, because I think this is a pretty widely recognized issue, but what, what the problem is that like, the default solution is like, let's donate millions of dollars and set up a chair at some university, right? And uh, this to me is like exactly the wrong approach because what happens is you set up a chair, but like who's the pool of scholars you're choosing from have still gone through this system that has uh, incentives that are uh, adverse to our interests, right? And so even if they, you know, get the position that, that's uh, endowed by this chair, you know, they're not necessarily gonna represent our internal point of view. So really the only way to do it, I think, is to kind of set up you know, uh, 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 an ecosystem of, uh, you know, like institutes uh, of, uh, of training academies, you know, whatever you want to call it, that offers, uh, you know, that, that finds scholars who are interested in, this, in these topics early on and providing them the opportunity through fellowship and through publishing opportunities, through speaking engagements, through community engagement to at least expose them to the insider point of view, right? Like, I think that so many of the scholars uh, that, that kind of work in the um, academy today, like, you know, they, they might do field work in India, but they're fundamentally products of the academy, right? I mean, they're, 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 you know, they work in universities, they work with their advisor, but, you know, how many of them have really been immersed with practicing Hindus and like seeing how practicing Hindus view their own tradition, you know, and, um, and think about their, their religion. So I think that's, that's really the the way forward, and you know that. But it's like you know this is a difficult thing, right? I mean, you need to have a sort of like you need to define like okay, you're going to set up this academy. You have to define like what is that insider point of view? Like what what is it that you're trying to communicate to these people? What is it that you want them to carry forward in their academic careers as a kind of important perspective? So you know, I think that there's a lot of uh, internal community work that needs to be done, kind of defining that interest, and then you have to do the legwork of setting up these institutes, providing these opportunities to scholars you know, uh, bringing them in early, you know, one of, one of the things I've uh, encouraged people to do is like, you know, it, it's, it's pretty simple exercise, right? Like look at the CVs of leading scholars in Islamic studies or Jews, Jewish studies or uh, Christianity, you know, like look at, look at their CVs, look at the opportunities that they've, they've gotten from various institutes, uh, various like speaking engagements, various conferences, you know, go look up those institutes, look up those conferences and find out like, okay, who's organizing these, like who's paying for them, you know? Like this is a this is a this is a, a kind of a, a, a an ecosystem that we're very new to, but has existed for hundreds of years for other religious traditions. And so, you know, we there's no need for us to reinvent the wheel. You know, like I think we just have to kind of look at what our other communities are doing and try to learn from them and try to uh, and try to take a similar approach. Like I think that you know, again, it's it's important that we're trying to hold uh, Trishki accountable, but you know, we can't expect. Uh, you know, uh, we, we, we can't expect uh, just the speaking out like it, they're tenured professors, you know, like the universities, there's it, it's limited, I think, in what we can accomplish that way. So uh, at least in the long term. So I think that we have to uh, kind of think about it strategically and try to set up, you know, our own um, uh, ecosystem that can influence, uh, you know, uh, influ that, that can 
get our point of view represented in the academy without having to sacrifice academic freedom and without having to sacrifice quality of scholarship, which are important um, values of you know the university system generally. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with a lot of. I mean, I second what you've said. I think um, I, I'll just spend a, a moment on on Trashki because I'd I'd rather not talk about her too much. But I I just find it interesting that people think that the solution is for her to be fired. First of all, she's tenured, as Michelle said. The likelihood of a tenured professor getting fired, even if they do something absolutely egregious, overtly horribly terrible, is very slim. Um, and the notion that if if she had insulted any other community, she would have been fired is untethered to reality. Uh, there are plenty of racist, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, misogynistic tenured professors that remain in their positions in the Western Academy. So we're not targeted uniquely as a community. Um, there are lots of issues with with tenure and, and, and that's a different conversation. And second, even if she was, I mean, it's whack-a-mole. She would show up as a martyr at a different university and then we'd be battling the same person in a different space. So I think it's better to, to sort of move away from that. I don't think that that's, I, I think that the real, um, if you want to call it battle or the real uh, a space to, to encounter that is not in getting her fired, but isn't actually having another scholar finding a way to have another scholar actually engage with her and, and to and for her to actually take that up, which seems to be the major issue. So that's all I'm gonna say about, about that situation. Um, I, I think we have a lot to learn from other communities that have, you know, as Michelle said, has have have really developed their own canon of scholarship about their history, about their traditions, and about the misrepresentation of their traditions. Um, and so rather than saying, you know, well, other communities get treated this way, why don't we? I, th I think the answer is we don't because we don't have that canon yet. We haven't established that. We have that work to do. Uh, and we can, we can keep moaning about how, you know, no one will let us, but that's, I don't think that that's actually true. I think there are ways to do it. Um, I, I have a good friend who has, who's a Native American scholar and, and and advocates for data sovereignty. So it takes up this, in, in the disabilities community, you have this, this motto, nothing about us without us. And so similarly for the Native American community, they've developed uh, an IRB for themselves. And so they have an agreement with, I think it's Nature Magazine and, and a couple of other journals that nothing will be published, including that includes data about um, tribal people or tribal lands that doesn't go through the tribal IRB in the United States for them. That's a massive, massive win, right? And so I think that's something that that we need to really think about. And so so there it's not just nothing about us without us, but it's that we have our own standards. We have our own way of looking about looking at how we are studied, how our scriptures are studied, how our history is understood. And it it is rigorous. But it's also emic. It also comes from our tradition, and I think there's a really legitimate argument to be made there. And I think also it points to this this important question around gatekeeping. Like, who has the authority? Who has the adhikara to decide what is legitimate or not legitimate scholarship about us? Right. Even within the context of academic freedom, you still have to have some kind of standards of rigor. Um, and I think as long as we let um, as long as we we let that remain, as long as we're answering to 
other people as gatekeepers, then we're going to remain in this position. So we need to be, we need to assert ourselves as the gatekeepers, uh, whether that's within the existing academic institutions or that's within our own. And I think, especially if we want to establish an alternate quote ecosystem uh, of, 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 or academic institutions, we need to, you know, whether it's fair or not, be even more rigorous and more discerning than Western institutions are about the study of anything. Um, we do have something to prove, unfortunately, you know, and, and I think it, it will be to our credit. I think it will serve us. So if you have something that's calling itself an, an Indic institution, you can't just call anyone a scholar. Like you have to have some kind of threshold for credentials. You have to have, and I'm not even saying that those need to be Western credentials. They can, we can develop our own system of credentialing, but I think that um, we need to be really, really transparent about what those credentials are. We need to be consistent in applying those standards. We just need to have the highest levels of rigor. And we come from an intellectual tradition. Like we're not, that's not new to us. We have those things. We just have to put those things into place. So it's sort of like an, a contemporary expression of what a, a dharmic institution would be. Um, and not just slapping on Sanskrit words onto Western institutions, but actually, um, but like Sanskrit lipstick, I call it. Mm -hmm. um, but like actually, and, and so I think, I think that's the direction to head in. Great, uh, Vishal. Any follow up or any concluding remarks? No, I I, uh, I agree one hundred percent. I think we uh, yeah, we're, we're on the same wavelength there. That's great. I think uh, much of it can be done, and uh, in fact, it ranges from fields to fields. We can talk about every field, but I think uh, we are reaching to the conclusion. So I think. Uh, it has been a wonderful experience for me as well to understand the nuances of how Indian Americans particularly think about Hinduphobia particularly. Obviously, uh, I see that Hinduphobia in the West and Hinduphobia in India obviously have some great similarities, but there are some interesting differences as well. So I think maybe in future, if anything related to this comes up, we would be more than happy to discuss with you. And let us see how that turns out. Uh, we thank the audience who has been patient for a good deal of time. And let's see what is awaited in the further episodes of Indus Think. I thank Dr. Indu and Vishal for coming for this session for a short notice, I would say. And uh, I'm really grateful uh, for the same. And let's see, maybe any creative discussion comes ahead. So really, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so for having, having us. us. Thank you.